Hey, it's Josh. You probably just fired up your podcast app, hoping to find episode 31 of Serious Film People, the 1997 recap episode. But unfortunately, you won't find that. While we recorded that episode back in June, it seems sometime in the intervening months, I misplaced my personal audio file, and despite my best efforts as of this recording, have been unable to recover said recording, and so now that is a lost episode. Maybe someday I will recover my file, and I will edit it together with Ken and TJ's, and you will hear that lost episode, but for now, it remains lost. With my sincerest apologies. Which is unfortunate, because it was actually one of our better recap episodes, I think, and also one of our longest recap episodes. We talked about a lot of movies from 1997, and had some pretty good discussions on the Best Picture nominees in the aggregate. We'll probably try to capture parts of that discussion, like our top 10s from 1997, or our rankings of the Best Picture nominees, and we'll probably put that somewhere like on TikTok or something like that, but in the meantime, please enjoy the series on 1944 and the hosting stylings of Ken Dusold. On to the show. Hi, I'm Josh. I'm Ken. And I'm TJ. Welcome to Serious Film People. This is our series in the 1944 films nominated for Best Picture at the 17th Academy Awards, held in 1945. And we are definitely starting this series off on a high note with a film that is both one of the defining <gasps> examples of film noir and our first, but certainly, certainly not last title from legendary director Billy Wilder. Josh, what movie are we talking about this week? W. Dems. Double indemnity, yes, sir. <laughs> My wife calls it W Dems. That's that's her name for it. Yes. My beautiful wife. And we will we will be taking after her, I hope, throughout this episode. Um because yes. it is it, it's a perfect little nickname. Um as usual, before we jump into talking about Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck and Edward G. Robinson, uh we gotta answer we gotta answer the question we always ask first. Had we seen it before? Josh? Have you seen Double Indemnity before this? Before we even talk about that, first of all, the answer is yes. But before we even talk about that, I want to set the scene because it's our first episode in the series. 1944. What's going on? How are we doing, world? <laughs> Anybody up to anything? Oh, you want to... You wanna... Heard any good jokes lately? <laughs> you you, you want to get into the, 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 the World War II of it all? Um, no? uh, well, I mean, we can talk about World War II. Actually, it was just in London. I saw the Church of War Rooms. Second time at the Church of War Rooms. Highly recommend if you're ever in London, especially for a World War II person. But um, World Series. Who won the World Series in 1944, TJ? <laughs> I believe that would be the St. Louis Cardinals. And they beat. Yes, they did. And they, they beat. beat the, the Yankees, right? Yeah, it's the Yankees. No, the, in 44, was that not? Oh, uh, you're right. No, in 42, they beat the Yankees. Yeah. In 44, they beat the St. Louis Browns. That's right. It's an all-St. Louis, Louis World Louis. Series. And then in 46, they beat the Red Sox. They won three in five years. Yeah, but 40, 44 Which won't is the be streak. happening again for a very long time. <sighs> Probably not. 44, yeah, the year of the streetcar series, which is, which is apropos, really, because 44 is also the year of Meet Me in St. Louis. We won't be talking about <sighs> that film or reviewing it uh, for the podcast, <laughs> as TJ is clearly happy that about might come up in the 44 recap episode <laughs> it will we'll, we'll probably discuss it yeah in the recap but um yeah that that comes out this year so st louis is having a good year despite the rest of the world being in the middle of a, a rather rather infamous conflict that alters literally all of mankind um and in some ways is still going on from some perspectives yes yeah that, that movie meet me in st louis is tied for the worst 
song aboard railbound train that I've ever seen. It's that damn trolley song from that tied with the hot chocolate song from the Polar mm. Express, which is deeply, deeply disturbing. Uh, do you count among the this category uh, Imagine Dragons and the trailer for Murder on the Orient Express from Kenneth Branagh? I do, I do not. It's not in the diegesis of okay. the movie. No. That's true. It's not. Yeah. Now, if, okay. if Kenneth Branagh broke it. out a cappella to that, we might we might have a, another contender. In in character, no less. That would have yes. been that would with have been French else. accent and all. He's Belgian, actually. Oh, Hercule Poirot. Yeah. Yes. Oh, sorry, I couldn't tell Probably from the, the the details he, of the accent, but he he gets he gets really offended in the novels if anybody refers to him as French. Um, so to so return to your original question, though, to yeah. Ken. Yes, I have seen this before in a class that I think all three of us took at St. Lucie High called American Film Genres. Did we all take that mm-hmm. with Mr. Mark Cummings? Yep, that's right. That's Ken, right. yes? Yes. Okay, thank you. Um, I think this was the fourth movie we watched in that class because we started with the gangster genre and watched Scarface 1932, uh, White Heat, and Biting Clyde. And then the next section was the film noir genre, and this was the first movie we watched in that. So this was the fourth movie I watched in that class. And I think this, combined with Bonnie and Clyde, the one-two punch of those two, uh, kind of broke my brain at age 17. And I was like, holy shit, movies exist, and I'm going to dedicate an oversized portion of the rest of my life to watching shit like this, I think. So, yeah, Double Indemnity, <laughs> a big movie for, for this guy. Also coming out of that class, if you didn't already know, Mark Cummings absolutely loves barbara stanwick oh barbara stanwick <laughs> i heard him say that no fewer than a dozen times <laughs> in the course of watching Dumb oh barbara stanwick in Every retrospect place. i have a lot of appreciation for him placing this right after the uh gangster movies just seeing yeah. the, the kind of logical outgrowth and some of the recycled mm-hmm. um iconography and grammar in those you know when you're in high school i think you assume that the teacher at least i did teacher shows up and just kind of you know, mm-hmm. spitballs, bullshits the day. And and now I can really see the strings and elements of design there. And it was a really good call, oh, as, yeah. a, as we might get into later. For sure. With the gangster, gangster genre of the 30s and the noir genre of the 40s, and both responding to the urbanization of the United States and and uh, cities. And, yeah, that's that's a logical, logical step. And I do want to talk about that in a little bit because – Film noir, as Josh just alluded to, that's that's really growing and kind of becoming the it subgenre in the 1940s. It's being informed by those gangster movies of the 30s for sure, as well as international films, particularly German expressionism. What with all the the foreign directors coming over here fleeing Europe during the war, but um, we'll get into that in a little bit. TJ, um, obviously, as Josh alluded to, we've all seen the movie before. What's your background with this movie other than that class? Yeah, I saw it then, and then I, I think I've seen it like four or five times at this point. That I, I think the next important kind of encounter I had with it was um, about ten years ago when I was in film school, and we read the screenplay. We read three Billy Wilder screenplays, which is a good choice if you're gonna if you're yes. gonna do a you know several works by one person oddly we read nothing by the coen brothers which is kind of strange but um we read double indemnity we read some like it hot and we read the apartment um and i remember the screenplay for double indemnity is damn near as long as the novella is and it's perhaps even more verbose than the novella is an interesting thing about billy wilder's screenplays and he frequently wrote with 
Charles Brackett. Now Brackett passed on this one because he said it was too dark, which I, I, I think is fun. Um, and so he wrote with Raymond Chandler, who was another um, detective novel writer at the time, hard-boiled fiction writer. Uh, great, adapt- great footnote there. The fact yeah, that yeah. Raymond Chandler is helping adapt one of his uh, writing competitors at the yeah, time. Yeah, James M. Kane, right. And and Kane later would say that the changes that they made, the solutions they came up to, came up with to some of the plot points was much better than what he came up with and he wished he could have put it in the novel. But reading the, the, the screenplays, his screenplays are also like vividly descriptive, sometimes taking paragraph form in the descriptions, which is something that you can't do anymore because nobody wants to read. But uh, the screenplays themselves are really worth reading as kind of pieces of literature. Um, since then, I watched this movie one time with my mom, I think during COVID, and uh, here we are now. I also want you to I want you to put Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler in context, though, TJ. Like, you kind of brushed over as if everyone knows who Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler are. If you're a serious film person, you probably do, but... Which I'm assuming... Maybe not everyone I'm does. assuming our audience is serious film people at this well, point. Real quick, Raymond, Raymond Chandler wrote all the books that... When you think of, like, a hard-boiled detective that would later become, like, a film noir movie, Raymond Chandler may have had a hand in it, whether well, it be the big, the big Sleep or The Long Goodbye... The great Robert Altman movie from the seventies. Farewell, um, my lovely. Long, right? Yeah, that's Farewell, my lovely. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's Robert Altman. Uh, did he write Lady in the Lake? Is that another one of his? That I don't I know. know. I don't know. I don't know if that's Regardless. Chandler, but it, it's either Raymond Chandler or Dashiell Hammond, right? It's either yes. it's it's yeah. it's Chandler's Philip Marlowe versus guys. Hammond's Sam Spade. Um, yeah, mm. which we'll talk about a little later because because this being our first uh, film noir, we'll we'll get into other film noir. Uh, a bit of a film noir discussion later, hopefully talk about more films a little bit. Um, but yeah, while we're talking about this uh, and, and on this subject, as TJ alluded to, this is adapted from a, a, a uh, James M. Cain uh, novella, which initially was a serial was serialized in a, in a magazine called Liberty magazine back in 1936. It wasn't actually published as a novel until 43. So it's literally being published right before this movie is being produced and released in 44. And to his credit, Kane is already pretty popular uh, among readers. He's like like Hammond, like Chandler. He's a Pulp Fiction writer of the era. And it is important to note that at this time period, in 1944, obviously World War II is going on. So much of Hollywood, particularly the male population between the ages of 18 and 40, are off at war. Um, women are not necessarily spending as much time going to movies because they're also out in the workplace. And there's a need for the studios to just kind of put together fast, cheap productions. So they're bringing in writers who write these kind of what they think are, are cheap, cheap stories, cheap fiction stories, which is how you end up with the Chandlers, the Hammonds, and the Canes actually adapting screenplays. It's also how you get Billy Wilder or Fritz Lang or Arno Preminger or Michael Curtiz, who's famous for Casablanca, they've all shown up uh, between the mid-30s and now. Nobody um, knows who directed Casablanca. <laughs> that's uh, that's, something, that's another stupid thing Taika Waititi said recently. Sorry. It, it, it directed <laughs> itself, clearly. I didn't hear that. Um, but all of those guys coming from Europe, they fled the European War, they fled Adolf Hitler, many of them from Austria or Germany, particularly we're talking about Billy Wilder. He's Austrian born and he first got to oh, start he's first got to start in Berlin. Um, he ends up in America because there's opportunity, there's promise, there's democracy. 
And so those guys start getting opportunities in Hollywood. Fritz Lang was already quite famous before he came over here. Um, Otto Preminger had made a name for himself too over there. The point being, though, they're all here suddenly, and they're bringing with them German expressionism. They're bringing with them this kind of darker, these darker themes, darker tone, this darker look and image, which all together combines to create this new subgenre within within crime thrillers or crime dramas that is film noir. And so that's how we're ultimately ending up with Double Indemnity in 1944. And thank God. Um, one of the, one of the, one of the pluses, one of the small little positives that people managed to find or, or, or develop the idea that it, it, even in troubled times, somebody can find something good. Um, film noir is, I guess, one of the small gifts that, uh, American and European filmmakers are able to squeeze out of all of this darkness. What I'm hearing you say, Ken, is World War II is worth it. No. Because we got, we eventually got out of the past. Mm, no, don't quote me on that. <laughs> that's that's that, don't quote me on that. Just a couple other things about James M. Kane. He, as opposed to, or kind of in contrast to Hammett and Chandler, I, I hit on this a little bit already, but he is a very, very sparse, direct, tip of the iceberg sort of writer. He came out of investigative journalism. And so there's not a lot of uh, flourishing, embellishment, accoutrement to his writing. Um, he also writes The Postman Always Rings Twice and Mildred Pierce. Mil- Mildred Pierce is a bit bigger of a, of a like, actually larger, uh, thicker of a novel out of the three of those. Um, and his wife's name was Florence Macbeth, which is that's just a great name. Um, and, then, and then lastly, real quick about Chandler, uh, Chandler working with Wilder. Uh, Chandler worked with Wilder because Wilder typically, like I said, worked with Charles Brackett and Brackett didn't want a piece of it. Well, Chandler apparently hated working with Billy Wilder and went to the studio and said, like, here's a list of demands or I'm out. And then they met the demands. So he had to, he had to finish the script. Um, you mentioned you mentioned Postman Always Wings Trice and Mildred Pierce. Both of them, my understanding, they were both published as novels before Double Indemnity. Um, but of course... Double Indemnity is coming in 44. Mildred Pierce comes the following, the adaptation that is, comes the following year, also nominated for Best Picture. And then Postman Rings twice, I believe, is 1946 with Lana Turner and John Garfield. Um, so he's got kind of a one, two, three punch as far as adaptations go here in the mid 40s. Um, he's also, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, TJ, I don't know how much you know about Kaner's, his, his, um, his novels. But my understanding is he's one of those uh, writers who had a book published years after he died. Um, oh. I think the, the the cocktail waitress. I don't know what year it was published, that. but um, it was it was. I think he died sometime in the seventies, and it was published sometime within the last ten or fifteen years. Huh. Um, so it's an interesting. He he apparently wrote prolifically into his later years, and um, somebody decided to go ahead and finish it and edit it for him. Uh, nice. Long after his death, so James M. Kane uh, with a 21st century novel out there for anybody interested in, in catching up on their uh, their crime uh, crime dr- thrilling uh, crime thriller novels. Um, your point to your point, TJ, you're talking about um, the the studio kind of giving over to some of their demands. It is interesting the backstory for Double Indemnity, the fact that it was initially published as we mentioned in Liberty Magazine back in 1936. Uh, initially, all of the studios wanted a piece of this when it was first published back in the 30s. But if anybody knows anything about the Hayes Code of the era, particularly the 1930s, a man by the name of Joseph Breen is 
a rather notorious fuss budget in Hollywood at this time. He's a censor. A fuss budget. That's what I'm going to call him. He's an ignorant fuss budget. Um, He's the one enforcing the Hayes Code in Hollywood at the time. And he writes letters to all of the studios warning them against uh, purchasing the rights to Double Indemnity and adapting it. And they all give in. They all decide to lay off of it until the early 40s, after Breen is no longer a censor, after he no longer has the power he did in the 30s. um, Suddenly you get Paramount offering... I read a couple of different numbers. I read 15,000. I read 20,000. Um, I read 15 more often. So let's say ballpark. They they spent about 15,000 apparently on the rights to this. Um, and initially all of the studios, all of the studios had been competing, which means um, most likely Kane got less money than he would have had the Hayes Code not been in place and enforced as it was in the 30s. So even just a few years later, he's earning a little less money on the, on the backside or the plus side of all of this. Paramount is purchasing the rights for Billy Wilder. And while Beckett is not, uh, or Brackett's not joining him in the writing, they do pair him with Chandler. And despite the fact, my understanding is Chandler and Wilder didn't really get along, they had a lot of disagreements, we get a really crackling dialogue, piece of dialogue back and forth throughout this movie, thanks to those two. And they thankfully improved upon the novella, because to your point, TJ, the novella doesn't really play as well if you I, I have looked up some of the, the some of the writing from the novella. It doesn't really work as well spoken. And so Chandler's ability to kind of finesse these scenes and finesse the dialogue really helps, particularly when given to a couple of performers like Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck playing yeah. Walter Neff and Phyllis Diedrichson. Ken, what is this movie? Set it up for us. Sure, of course. This is a movie. We've got an insurance, uh, kind of a womanizing insurance and salesman, uh, insurance salesman Walter Neff, played by uh, Fred McMurray, as I mentioned. Uh, he meets two Fs, like in Philadelphia, and he he looks like the love child of Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan. <laughs> he is a buttoned up. Um, mm-hmm. He is a buttoned up kind of figure. Um, a bit would we call him kind of a? a I don't know. He's like at the time, I guess, magazine handsome, right? He's just cut that kind of rugged, kind of default. He seems like a look. He seems like a G man, you know. That's about right. What's yeah. that mean? Um, basically, like <laughs> buttoned up, classically handsome by the book, kind of an FBI. What do you think of as like somebody that joins the FBI in the fifties? Yeah, I know he's not in the FBI; he's in insurance. But like crossdressers, <laughs> not, not head the FBI, <laughs> but join the FBI. Um, We've got Walter Neff, played by Fred McMurray, who is who he meets and immediately falls for Phyllis Diedrichson, played by Barbara Stanwyck. She is a, a, a kind of smoldering blonde presence who there's something about her from the immediate from the immediate first moment, which we'll talk about in a little bit. He there's something about her that just overcomes him. And what does he do? He, even though she's married. Even though she's married, yes. She's Mrs. Phyllis Diedrichson. Uh, he falls for her and over a very short period of time is willing to suddenly commit insurance fraud, number one, so that they can get her husband to unknowingly... Which is her idea. She brings him a scheme. Unknowingly. And then he's like, sure. Convince her husband to unknowingly uh sign a new life insurance policy for fifty thousand dollars which contains a double indemnity clause hence the title and that double indemnity clause 
states that should he die of an accident, instead of $50,000, they will pay out $100,000. And then the two proceed to plan and execute a murder of Mr. Diedrichson that looks like an accident. And And collect on the insurance and also get the husband out of the way so that Phyllis and Walter can get together. Of course, this is a film noir, so things are not going to play out as they intended. And that is where the fun latter half of the film uh, plays out, particularly uh, with the kind of intrusion or or complication posed by Walter's good friend, uh, Barton Keyes. Played by Edward like G. The Robinson. The fraud investigator That's at, right. the, at the insurance firm. TJ, do you remember how I described my favorite kind of movie whenever we talked about this kind of thing? Um, guy gets in over his head. Guy gets in over his head movies. The kind of thing the Coen brothers constantly make. What with Fargo and Big Lebowski and No Country for Old Men. Schemes. Schemers. They come up with these plans that there's no way they could go wrong. Except it's so easy how they're going to go wrong. And then the rest of the movie is just it going really wrong and escalations and tensions and catharsis. And that's why this movie fucking rips. Because it's exactly the kind of movie that puts a big dumb smile on my face. Uh, I love this. And I love these kinds of movies. This is like, this is the, uh, this is the blueprint. But what, what Josh doesn't, doesn't know is Katie's upstairs making notes right now. <laughs> Making me sign an insurance policy. Exactly. Really, it's 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 uh, Amy Dunn. Amy Dunn probably watched Double Indemnity like fifteen times. The protagonist of Gone Girl. We're ignoring the fact that this is actually uh, this is actually inspired by a, a real case, like a real story. Because Kane apparently, oh, as TJ pointed out, early on was a journalist in New York. He's actually in a courtroom observing a court case in which a woman back in the twenties killed her husband. And had her uh, via her via her uh, then boyfriend, so she had a boyfriend on the side. She convinced the boyfriend, "Let's plan to knock off the husband." The boyfriend did so at her urging, at her direction, and she ends up getting the chair. And this story sticks with him so strongly that he ends up writing the 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 novella a decade after the fact. And that's where we end up with double indemnity. So this is not all that far fetched in the sense that um, even in 1944. It's been in the news, at least in New York, back in the 20s, again, almost two decades prior. But it's definitely something that has happened. Um, you said she, so, gets, she gets the chair, like, like hit with it, like in WWE? Or? <laughs> she, she, she's electrocuted. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's really, it's actually a creepy, creepy thing. I looked, at, I looked into it, and it's one of the earliest, uh, you can actually find a photograph of her being electrocuted. Oh my it's God. It's one of the earliest examples. Someone snuck a camera into the room when journalists were allowed in to observe, and there is a photograph, and it is creepy. It's a very yeah, dark, I imagine. dark uh, bit of, of That reminds me, history. I watched like, I rewatched like the middle hour of the Green Mile last week. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> When what's his name gets the chair with with, with the dry, with the dry sponge, mm-hmm. Michael Thanks. Clark Duncan. Well, Michael Clark Duncan doesn't get the dry sponge. Oh no, you're talking. Uh, sorry, Michael, Michael Jeter. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Michael, the, the, the late great Michael Jeter. Yeah, you mentioned Barbara Stanwyck's intro. You want to talk more about that? Yeah. Uh, first of all, there are there are several great intros. In fact, all three have really unique and I think extraordinary intros. Um, three being three being three Fred being McMurray Walter Neff and played, Barbara Stanwyck yeah. and, and Edward, Edward G. Robinson. Robinson. Yeah. 
Um, all three of them, I think, are, are stellar um, introductions. I mean, the film kicks off with a, a speeding car running through the dark and nighttime streets of downtown Los Angeles. Um, we get Neff showing up to his office. He has to be let in by the night manager. He's been shot. He's been shot. We don't, know that, we don't know yeah. that immediately, but once he gets up to his office and you takes his coat too. off, um, yeah. you can yeah. see the spot. He's been hit on his uh, left shoulder there. You see the little the gunshot wound. Um, and I just love the fact that the first time we really get to hear from him, he's starting to speak into that dictaphone and reveal that he's a murderer. It's a fantastic yeah. introduction to your lead yep. character. Yeah. He says, I, I fell for the one, I, I committed murder for money and for the woman. I didn't get the money and I didn't get the woman. So he tells you everything about the story you're about to see. Exactly. And then he starts unfurling the yard. And oh, it's excellent. In, in, Love that shit. In doing that, what I think is really compelling about this movie that a lot of uh, films noir will do after this is it sets up the movie, the, the framing device is essentially a confession. Um, mm hmm. Yep. So it's it's confessional. It's letting you know that our protagonist is um, not somebody that is amoral, but somebody that is has has done something immoral. Um, he's coming to accountability and some sort of reckoning for it, or at least trying to with his dying breaths. It also just structurally lends the film a deterministic, or really more so a fatalistic. Um, mm -hmm. Foreboding, foreshadowing to the entire thing. This idea that. Even though it you know begins at the end that he's a dead man walking from when we first meet him, um, which is something that's a, a very important and recurrent theme throughout films noir. Yeah, and a heavy heavy scoop of dramatic irony just kind of sprinkled over the entire story at that point. Given you know we know where this guy ends up and he doesn't. It, it's also recounts it. It's also an example of not wasting a single sentence of dialogue. This introductory confession also includes key information to another character in Barton Keys, the one who he's recording his confession for. We learned through his confession that Barton Keys is apparently a great insurance investigator and has been the only person this whole time, as we're about to see, the only person who managed to figure out exactly what was going on. He just couldn't connect all of the dots to get you to not exactly. Right? That's what he says at the right. end. He's like, even you couldn't figure out. He says, well, I can't solve them all. But he is the only one to know. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a suicide. Mm -hmm. It was a murder. Um, yeah. He's the only Which, one who's committed to that. I, I really like him as a character because one thing I admire out of characters, but out of just people in general, is that they don't have to necessarily be likable, but I love people that do their homework. And I don't mean that literally mm -hmm. as like my students. I mean people that... Um, <laughs> put their head down and grunt through it and they've done the reading and they've got the binders and you know and, and so i love some of my favorite bits of this film are when he's talking about you know well here's the ledger of suicide by poison suicide by ha you know hanging suicide by gunshot and then it's delineated what type of poison etc cetera, etc cetera, to the point that he knows that nobody has died from committing suicide off a train before um, back and, of a slow, a relatively yeah. slow moving train. Yeah. And, and just the fact that he knows that because one, he's experienced, but two, because he's done his homework for, uh, for me is, right. I, I love that as a character quality. Well, that, that also, that'll lead in, it's jumping a little bit ahead, but that also speaks to the great introduction of Edward G. Robinson, because we've already been privy to something about his character 
we're first introduced to him when Neff comes to his office and uh, the camera begins behind Edward G. Robinson and all we get is Edward G. Robinson talking very quickly, very excitedly. Before we get that though, hold on. Keys has mentioned the opening scene when, when Fred McMurray sits down and starts talking in the gramophone, basically begins his confession, begins the narration that will take us through the rest of the movie. He's, he's talking to Keys. He's leaving a voice memo for Keys. He says, Dear Keys, you knew it all. And then we finally meet Keys, and you can describe how we meet him. When we meet Keys, it's in the office. I love the fact that the camera is stationed behind him. We get Edward G. Robinson again talking rapidly, very quickly, very excitedly. This is a guy that is in his element. And when the camera finally cuts to a shot from in front of him, you get Edward G. Robinson in all his glory. And in 1944, Edward G. Robinson is a very, very famous actor. He's a very famous figure. Um, incidentally, he is most famous for playing gangsters. And it's interesting how, as TJ, to your point earlier, gangs- the gangster genre feeding into film noir, here you have a literal face of that genre appearing in this film, but he's going to be subverting your expectations about Edward G. Robinson because he is, in fact, the he's the stand-in for the gumshoe. There, there isn't a detective really in the film, but Keyes is standing in in that role as the insurance investigator. And so he is, by default, our uh, our kind of good guy. Uh, and he's got a certain air of, of gravitas, a certain air of respect. And from the immediate, just because of, from what we know uh, in, in Walter's dictation in the beginning of the film, to his sheer presence in that scene speaks volumes for how brilliant his character is supposed to be and he delivers i think on it entirely tj you got a point yeah um i think that's a key distinction as well between like there's a crossover there's a venn diagram crossover between detective stories and uh noir stories and i think a key distinction has to do with the the role of the lens character so as you point out there that you know edward g robinson is in his uh, kind of closer to like a sam spade character um even though right. i would call um the maltese falcon noir adjacent that with noirs you're typically going to get characters that are um as i mentioned earlier cd or more amoral um ones that are kind of fallen angels or or uh damned <laughs> damned people wandering the earth um and I think that's a key thing is that if this were a more traditional detective story it would have been from the perspective of keys most likely right and it's interesting because to to your point yeah the the traditional figure is more of an anti-hero um that doesn't really fit walter nor does it certainly doesn't fit phyllis um the closest we get is keys but keys I think the, the the worst thing we see Keys do is basically you know let the let the uh, the farmer go in the beginning the guy who's in his office when we first meet Keys who's committing trying attempting to commit insurance fraud and instead of reporting him he just gets him to waive his claim and walk out the door and that's about the worst thing we see him do is turn turn a blind eye to someone attempting to do wrongdoing but he is so unabashed in his doggedness for discovering and revealing the truth in all of these claims and trying to basically uh, limit how much money is going out. It's an interesting dichotomy when you think about it between Walter and um, and Keyes. They are, despite the fact that they are best friends, their functions are completely opposed to one another. Walter 
being so focused. His purpose as a salesman for the insurance company is to bring in as many insured persons as possible and as much money. Meanwhile, you've got Keys on the back end who's trying to limit how many of these people are going to actually get any money. Well, yes and no. He's he's more concerned. Keys is more concerned with the truth, interestingly, which is why he kind of butt heads with like the head of the insurance company. Because like when, you know, the Diedrichsen claim comes in after Diedrichsen is killed on the train and, you know, suddenly the firm is on the hook for $100,000, the head of the company is like, no fucking way we're paying $100,000. But Keyes is like, it's it's airtight. He didn't kill himself. Like, you know, the the boss insisted to suicide, so I don't have to pay. But Keyes is like, no, it's not a suicide. Like, I care about what actually happened here. Even if that means we got to pay off the nose, it's like, that's what's right, you know? And I, I think a key to build on what Ken was talking about a moment ago as well, um, with getting the, the farmer to sort of waive that, even if it's not maybe the 100% by the book thing to do, that makes the ending even more um, poetic, for lack of a better term, where Walter tries to get him to, hey, why don't you pretend you found these tapes in the morning? And he's he, he's like, I can't do it. I can't let you go. But, Interestingly, that would have bound Keyes into kind of a double indemnity of his own at the end, um, both finding, acknowledging that he saw Walter and knows what Walter did and letting him go. Um, and that's just something that he can't do at that point, almost out of a respect and admiration for the man that he knew Walter to be. Um, it's, a, it's a really great ending. I'm sure we'll come back to it later. I, I do want to come back to the ending and i do want to loop back around and come back to walter and keys because it's it's an essential element to to this particular film um but we were talking about introductions and we've got one more character to come to and that would be mrs phyllis diedrickson and barbara stanwick we get oh barbara stanwick walter going to visit that's right going to visit phyllis um, he's actually going to see Mr. Diedrichsen, Phyllis's husband, um, whose first name for the life of me I can't remember if it's even mentioned. I don't know if they say it. Um, but in he, the in the novel, their name is Nerdlinger. Ner- There's yes, a great change. <laughs> and Walter is Walter Huff in the novella. Yeah. Um, so yeah. they they changed a couple of the names, but yeah, Nerdlinger um, doesn't it doesn't really hold up quite the same way as Diedrichsen, at least without distraction. Um, speaking of distraction, though, he shows up to the Diedrichsen's household. He's let in by the maid or the the housekeeper and he's seeking Diedrichsen. he's not there but the missus is there as she reveals herself on the landing at the top of the staircase in the foyer in just a towel Woo! (laughs) she'd been sunbathing is that right uh she's i can't i it's not clear to me every time i watch this movie if she's going sunbathing or she's just been sunbathing um, the either, point is, she's not decent by 1944. Correct. She is. She is. As far as the audience is concerned, that woman is basically naked, and she is showing herself off for a man who's not her husband. What a just hussy! The front door. Yes. She, wearing an anklet. Wearing that an, he comments on no fewer than four times. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, Barbara Stanwyck. I'm, I'm. I'll be honest. I'm not the. Oh, Barbara Stanwyck. I'm not. The, I'm personally not the biggest fan of Barbara Stanwyck. That said, she does no, have... No, Mark Cummings one. is the biggest fan of Barbara Stanwyck. <laughs> she has an allure to her in this movie, and I love, okay, as ridiculous as it looks, that cheap, tacky-looking, blonde hussy wig that she's wearing, that's clearly <laughs> a fake. Yeah. 
Um, but it screams so much about how phony the character is. Mm-hmm. And That's why they put it yes, on her. It's, yeah, the, it's, the, 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 it's, it's, it's fake looking on purpose. Yes, sure. exactly. And yeah. it works, though. She's It's like when she puts it on Stanwyck, she's nailing that character because despite despite the wig the wig is really one of the only first calls or signs that she that there's something really off about this woman because she is able to play it kind of along the line throughout her interactions initially with walter particularly during that first encounter even though she's kind of holding she's she's going punch for punch with him in the back and forth dialogue um she's not revealing herself at all and in fact it takes quite a bit in the movie before we even learn just how deceitful she is in addition to her fake uh wig that is you know designed to again as you said ken uh demonstrate how phony and untrustworthy she is uh for the record i watched a a documentary from 2006 on the criterion blu-ray right before we recorded and they also mentioned her lipstick which apparently i i I couldn't i didn't really notice this myself but it kind of extends a little higher than her upper lip than it normally would and it's supposed to give her like this like I don't know what it's supposed to do exactly, but like a like a slash across the face or something like that. Like I don't know, just the the thought into her appearance to make her you know a femme fatale was interesting to me. That is an interesting note, by the way, that her lips that the, the lipstick actually makes her lips bigger than they really are, or appear bigger than they are. Uh, TJ, to your point about you want to talk about the anklet? Yeah, yeah. Uh, just like Walter, I want to I want to keep talking about it. Um, that, that's a I, I think what that does is that add some characterization to Walter where, and I'm totally stealing here from Hugh S. Mannon, um, an essay he wrote, I think it was in Film Quarterly, called Some Like It Cold. Get it? Yeah. Get it? Um, yeah. And he says that uh, Walter primarily is a fetishist, and not not just sexually, um, but that what, what fetishism does is it fixates on the object, whatever the object is, and not what the object is actually intended to function as. So it instills a different, um, basically commodity or ideology, a worth within an object that it doesn't actually have. And so for Walter there, he brings up this ankle bracelet, seemingly with an erotic fetishization of it. And then she says, oh, it's got my name. He's like, which is what? Phyllis. And he's like, mm, I don't know about that. <laughs> um, and and later, that's, you know, his, his, uh, his kind of idea even to do this, he's not motivated at the beginning of the film really by... I think I'm going to get with Phyllis. He's not motivated really by the money. And even when he adds on, oh, it's got to be double indemnity, they'll pay extra for this. It wasn't enough for him to just get away with killing someone and trying to run off with Phyllis. He had to do it in like the most extreme way possible. And he had yeah. to do it. It was, it was kind of seeking cheap thrills the whole way around, right? So for him, it's not an action directed towards the consequence of a motivation like even with Phyllis, like there's no real reason for her to kill her husband that we know of. He says that, or she says that he like talks bad to her and he's kind of a dick when he's on screen, but we don't get a sense. She that says he's, she's bored. Yeah. Oh, he yeah. She said they that he, he'll, he'll, he'll listen to a ball game on the radio. I'll sit there and knit. We go nights without speaking to each other. So she's just like bored. Yeah. yeah basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so what Manon is pointing out in his piece is, Uh, Part of what makes this such a cynical movie is that people aren't doing things for that particular gain. They're doing things for, like, the the meaning or the commodity factor that they invest in them themselves, which I I think is a really interesting thing and, again, comes back when we get to the ending. 
Well, it's interesting that you say that because I just kind of it kind of clicked for me. You know, Phyllis brings this plot to Walter initially, and he initially says, "You know, go f yourself. You know, who, who do you think I am? You know, I'm not gonna, I'm not some sap who's gonna put out this insurance policy and then kill your husband for you. Like, I'm not that guy." And then he, what does he do after that? He on his way home from that conversation, he stops at a drive-through to get a beer, which is something you could do in the 1940s. We used to be a proper country. <laughs> then he goes bowling by himself, and then he says in the narration, "I didn't feel like going to a show." So I just went home. So again, he's he's trying to fill time. He's bored. And then she comes over later that night and he's like, you know what? Let's do it. (laughs) I'm ready. Because bowling didn't satisfy my attention span. Let's plot to kill your husband instead. Well, he left a pretty gross split there. So no wonder he's not getting thrills from bowling. But um, in the novel, it's elucidated much more verbosely than in the movie. I think the movie does better, but he does talk about like as soon as the the novel is written in first person. And he says, as soon as she mentioned that I knew what she was on to, because nobody asks about accident insurance. He's like, people ask about life car, whatever. Nobody. That's the one insurance that we try to push on people because nobody thinks it's ever going to happen to them. So the minute she asked about it, he's like, Oh, I know. Um, if you ask about accident insurance, it's because you're not anticipating an accident. Right, exactly. That's the lesson. Mm-hmm. Um, so what what are the exact mechanics of the scheme, Ken? How are they going to pull this off? Well, first they're going to have to get Mr. Diedrichson, obviously, to sign a life insurance policy with a double indemnity clause. Fortunately, they have an insurance salesman handy. That's true. And I also like that the guy that got to play Diedrichson, he's just, he just sucks. Like, there's, like, nothing redeeming about him. There's there's no point anytime he's on screen where you're like, you know, I kind of feel bad they're going to kill this guy. Never once. And that, like, kind of, that kind of, you're not quite rooting for them, but you're not not rooting for them well, once you actually see this guy. Well, the, the thing is, he's not, he's not particularly nasty or particularly bad. He just sucks. Yeah, he's just a lazy kind of... I don't really care about it. He's kind of rude. He's kind of a prick. Yeah. Yeah. He fills some time in the film and you're just kind of like, I'm done with you. Can we, can we get past this now? Let's kill him and move on to the interesting parts. <laughs> and I mean, just the way he's laying on the couch during the meeting, like yeah, he's yeah. just, when he's selling the insurance, yeah. he's got a, there's a, there's a guy from his, his, his insurance company. It's his insurance company. He's got automobile insurance. He's got a guest in his household and he's just lying back on the couch while his daughter and his wife, are sitting back there playing playing backgammon or whatever they're those Chinese Chinese checkers. checkers thank you. Yeah, and and he's laying on the couch talking to to Neff. Rather rather da- talking down to him as well. Yeah, he's not interested in anything he's selling. Yeah, he's just a prick. Yeah, yeah, he just wants this interaction to be over. And so Neff uses the uh, guise of upping his auto insurance, correct, or like continuing his auto insurance contract, and gets him to sign the life insurance or the accident insurance contract by pretending it's the auto insurance contract. Which, if there's one lesson for you out there when you're watching this movie, always read the documents you're signing, people. Because call your lawyer Ken Dusold, <laughs> and he will read it for you. This choice, tell you if you're getting screwed. The choice of a lawyer is important one and should not be based solely upon advertisement. No, no, no. I'm not saying that. I'm saying the choice of a lawyer is an important one, and you should definitely hire Ken Dusold. Yes, because this is 100% (laughs) an area that I deal with on a daily basis. No, it's not. Um, Okay. That said, uh, they get him to slyly sign not just one, but two copies, because they need need him to sign... um, Duplicate, triplicate, blah, 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 blah. 
So he signs, and there, right there, he's basically signed his own death warrant, right? Because at that point, he is covered by the insurance, and it's really, it's really shockingly impressive how well thought out this murder is. Can I just say that? Like, Walter has everything kind of planned out down to the letter, and they basically, <sighs> they basically pull it off. Um, on paper? It's pretty good on paper, but like, in practice... It doesn't, you know, work out for him because the the things you don't really think about when you're doing it on paper come and bite him in the ass, like witnesses, for example. Yeah, but the witnesses would only have been sought out. It's it's but really it's but four keys. Mm-hmm. But four keys. There's one person. The police automatically write it off as suicide, um, or excuse me, not suicide, but an accident. Norton, their insurance boss, writes writes it off as he thinks it's a suicide, and Keys pushes back. Oh, it's definitely not suicide. It's only after Keyes has thought about it for some time, as TJ says, he does his homework and he second he thinks again. He thinks about all of the all of the pieces of the puzzle. He starts to put them together, and it's just because Keyes is so damn good at what he does that they ultimately see everything unravel. Because otherwise, the the Mister the Jackson character who's on the train, the one witness to all of this, played by Porter Hall, by the way in probably the only upbeat performance or character I've ever seen him in. Um, he's usually, he's the guy, he's, he plays a grouchy senator who doesn't like Jefferson Smith, and Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Um, he's the the nervous, he's the, the psychiatrist or the psychologist with the nervous tick at Macy's in Miracle on 34th Street, who's always pulling his eyebrows, who ultimately admits Chris Kringle into the sanitarium. Um, he's... He's usually playing kind of a, a just a grouchy, unlikable character, and it is kind of nice to see him in such an upbeat role uh, like this one. Um, so their scheme is <laughs> uh, Mr. Dieterson is going to take the train up north to Stanford for a class reunion. He normally drives, but this time he's going to take the train because he broke his leg. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, he broke his legs. He was, he was going to cancel the trip because he broke his leg, but Phyllis convinced him, hey, you should go anyway. Um, so... Their scheme is they're going to kill him on the way to the train, and then Fred McMurray is going to put on a fake cast and take his crutches and pretend to be Diedrichsen yep. on the train so that people see Diedrichsen get on the train, quote-unquote Diedrichsen, and then Fred McMurray will walk to the back of the train, jump off, and then they will drop Diedrichsen's body that they just killed half an hour earlier at that spot, making it look like he jumped off the train himself and died. That's their scheme. Which... I agree. That's pretty good. For 1944. Also, it's good. Yeah, for 1944. Yeah. And uh, something else said in the documentary is that, you know, is this, I guess, just before the Hayes Code or right in the... No, it's the middle of the Hayes Code. Oh, the right? Hayes Code is still in effect, but it's not being enforced like it was in the 30s. Well, so one thing about the Hayes Code is <laughs> the Hayes was kind of like, don't give audiences bad ideas. Yes. And so something they mentioned in the documentary is like the fact that they basically tell the audience how to commit a murder... <laughs> It's like pretty wild for 1944. This is because th- they do. While, while we're on that subject, real quick, um, it's funny that you mention that because it's because of the Hayes Code that we get the ending we get. Apparently, right. it was a no-no according to the censors that a film depict suicide, which is how the novella yeah, is supposed ends. to be a double suicide, correct, yeah, or a murder suicide, I guess. But right, suicide yeah. is a no-no, so they have right. to finish the film with a murder. That's yes. That's the that's the only moral solution. Um, sorry, folks. Suicide's a no-no. You have to you have to kill off your your partner. Can I comment on the um, strangling in the car? Yeah, 
or the neck bre- the neck breaking in the car yeah, as yeah he breaks the, his neck yeah. which talk about extreme from behind and obviously you couldn't show it but this is a, one of those instances where there were such talented filmmakers during the Hayes code that you know and and now too but my point being um they find something that's possibly more disturbing than actually showing it, which is that long yes. hold mm. on the close-up of Barbara Stanwyck's face. And yeah. I immediately recall uh, Janet Lee in Psycho and those those head-on shots of her front-lit driving while she's hearing uh, them talk about like, oh, and I was sitting right there and I was flirt- she was flirting with me and then she stole all this money. While she's trying to and and while she's trying to get away with the money. Yeah, yeah, and in both instances, you're watching these women go from within the same shot, go from this kind of fear of, oh my god, what am I doing? Slash, what have I done? Uh, is this going to work? To satisfied, perhaps sexually gratified. I'm getting away with it. Yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. Barbara Stanwyck. For sure. I don't know if Janet Lee so much, but Barbara Stanwyck is like getting sexual gratification out of this. I, I shouldn't say Barbara Stanwyck. I should say Phyllis is. And and just the change in that single shot and the range of emotions that Stanwyck's playing and then again um, Janet Lee plays in Psycho. Um, I, I think it's just really wonderful work there. It's a, it's an astounding shot because of how how really brilliantly Stanwyck is playing it. It's it's incredibly subtle how she transforms the widening of her eye almost imperceptibly. She tilts her head kind of to the right at first and then back to the left. She tilts it to the right just as the murder is happening and then slightly tilts it ever so slightly back so that it's looking straight ahead more or less when she comes to that epiphany moment that you're talking about, TJ, where she's satisfied, she's okay yeah. with it. and Sly smile. And the eyes become like this deadened black. She's she's a murderess. She is at that point totally okay that, that, with what just happened. That's all great. That stuff is like really uh, a good piece of acting. But just like the decision to just keep your eyes for the entire time is like just that in itself is like so cold blooded. And like the fact that she's having all those other reactions that you just mentioned makes it ten times more cold blooded. But just like keeping her eyes for it while while her husband's getting murdered next to her is, is psycho it's awesome and and Sick. it's it's perfect for the setting of a car because if you've ever had a conversation of, with someone while you're driving you can't look or you shouldn't look them in the eye i have an uncle who turns around and i'm like dude what are you doing <laughs> uh, but you just you know you kind of just stare and even if you're not paying like super attentive attention which you should be you're just kind of like vaguely kind of staring out but still registering what's going on so it's a very unique setting to to be able to enact that i think there are two contrasts to that shot that i particularly love and they both follow shortly thereafter and that's the amount of confidence and wonder almost in her eyes and the look on her face in that shot just a just a short period of time later once they've actually you know left the body on the he, he's gone and done his thing tra- trying to track people on the train they've left the body they get back to the car and the fear of sheer and genuine f- um of uh, well it's it's the the I'm sorry, the the look of genuine fear that crosses both of their faces when they're in the car and it won't start for Phyllis initially. Mm. Totally. It's a, a great note. It's a great beat. It's a great it's 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 a great piece of, of contrast with that shot of her just a short time before. Additionally, a few minutes after that, once she's dropped Neff off, once she's dropped Walter back off to his apartment, 
He's checked in with Charlie downstairs in the garage. By the way, side note, Charlie is played by Hattie McDaniel's older brother, Hattie McDaniel of Gone with the Wind fame. Um, He checks in with Charlie, Charlie sees him, and then he decides to go for an evening walk. And unlike Phyllis, the moment that they seem to have gotten away with it, he is suddenly not confident. He is suddenly a yeah. dead man walking, he says, and he feels it. That's also a detail, the car not starting. That's not in the novel that Wilder added, like, the day of shooting, or the day after shooting, because he got in his car that night after shooting something, and his car didn't start, and he was like, oh, I've got an idea. It's a brilliant, it's a brilliant, brilliant moment in the movie. But I also like that... Beat you just mentioned where he's like walking to the drugstore after they yep. commit the murder. He, he he needs to be seen again so they can like establish the alibi that he was home all night. And I think the narration says something like, "I couldn't hear the steps of my own feet, and I I felt like a dead man." Well, I don't know if he says that exact words, but like it, it kind of brings back uh, TJ's idea of like the fatalism of all this. Like this this isn't going to work out. He even no- realizes in the moment in the midst of it when they when it looks like they got away with it, he realizes this is not going to work, and. We know that because we saw the beginning scene of the movie and and he's telling us this after the fact that this doesn't work out. But the fact that he like kind of senses that in the middle of it is, is interesting. The fatalism. Of the yeah, movie. it's it's less um, cynical and fatalistic if he doesn't have to live so long with that realization. If he just kind of moseys along and then gets shot by Phyllis and then we have five minutes of the movie left and he confesses to Keys, it's a little bit more tragic um, but the fact that he has this, um, you know, moment of realization, I can't think of what the Greek word is, um, that, that is a part of, of the dramatic structure. Shame on you for not realizing the Greek word, TJ. Uh, a third of um, our audiences are Greek, TJ. You're supposed to be I, ready with that. I know, I can't, but... Um, I'd like to apologize to all Greek listeners. <laughs> Haven't they been through enough? For, for my goddamn ignorance. Uh, but but have it, having that there kind of adds again to that, that sense of um, him just being a shell of a man and just being a shadow, yeah. really. Well, what does Keys always say? What does Keys say is like the key, the you know key, forgetting the pun, uh, to his success in sniffing out insurance fraud. He refers to the little man inside him, which is like a, basically his intuition. He refers to his intuition as the little man inside him that that speaks to him when something doesn't seem right in an insurance claim. And it's almost like, and he he refers to the little man numerous times throughout the movie, and that's the little man that realizes there's something off about the Diedrichson case too. But it's almost like. In this one scene, this one moment, uh, Fred McMurray has a little man in him, too. And it's the little man saying, hey, you're fucked. This isn't going to work out. And then, like, the next morning, they start um, the insurance the insurance business at, at the firm where, like, they get the claim. And I guess not the next morning, but it's the next scene, more or less, where they're at the insurance company and they get called in the big boss's office. And, like, the fact that, like, Keyes is initially on his side is, like you said, TJ, pretty satisfying when Keyes is like, nah, it wasn't a, su- it wasn't a suicide because... The numbers don't bear it out, you know. You don't you don't study actuarial tables. You just care about how much we pay here. That that scene is also fantastic, a fan, absolutely fantastic one for Edward G. Robinson because Keys gets to completely undress the bo- the insurance boss. Who, by the way, the character's name is Edward Norton. I just want to hang on that for just a second. <laughs> the insurance boss, Edward Norton. How was Edward G. Robinson not nominated for best supporting actor in this movie? Good question, because. Like he he's he's the he's the best part of every scene he's in, by a country mile. Particularly that one. That's the that's the scene. He's got this obsessive superiority that 
and he's able to deliver what TJ was talking about earlier. He just spits off all of this information that he's just got ready, locked and loaded in his brain, about death and murder and suicide. All of these facts that, when you come to think about it, somebody who is not married and clearly spends all of his time committed to his job, yeah, of course, it makes sense that he is this good at it because he knows all of this, he's experienced so much of it, and he's prepared for it. Um, with a lesser actor, it might come off as gimmicky or over the top at times, but Robinson, he plays this controlled kind of fixation or neuroticism that just, it just, it's totally believable. There's a realism to it that I love in every scene. To your point, Josh, he does steal every scene he's actually in. He owns every room he's in. He comes in, yeah. he's the top dog. Uh, Anagnorisis. That's the word I was looking for. But um, t- with... with <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> Explain yourself. Anagnorisis. That's the... What does that uh, mean? That is the... It means recognition in Greek. Um, when the lead character in a tragedy rec- goes from ignorance to knowledge, and it's knowledge of his or her tragic flaw that is barreling them inevitably towards their fate. Um, I, am, I am curious but, to all of our Greek listeners, if you could comment on the uh, podcast for us, let us know whether or not that's a word you regularly use um, in 2023. I, I'd be I'd be curious to know. With with Robinson, and I'm, I'm going to the end as well, uh, because he's part of what makes it work so well, is that he's, he's still doing his job, but getting less of a kind of heightened satisfaction satisfaction out of it because it involves him kind of nailing the guy that was his friend and he says uh you didn't realize he was so close to you right across the desk and i love the line where he goes closer than that i love you too that's walter's response it's a that is maybe my favorite interaction in the whole movie even when you've got phyllis even even over phyllis and walter going back and forth in their first meeting with the suppose 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 i love the last back and forth between walter and um Walter and Keys. Keys. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got some of the best exchanges in the movie. Uh, there's yeah. an earlier well, point when when Keys is trying to get him to take a job as his like number two in the investigative half of the side of the office, and when Walter turns him down, which let's be honest, an insurance salesman's going to earn more money because he's earning commissions um, than the salaried uh, investigator will. So Walter's going to turn him down also because we know Walter's actually involved in a in a. a insurance fraud um but his keys immediate response is because he's trying to butter him up telling him well you're better you're smarter than all the other people in the office and he realizes oh, i guess i was wrong you're not smarter you're just taller great line great great as he's walking out of the room yes. too the door's open he's about to walk out what a great it, exit it's a Incredible mic drop exit. yeah it's a mic drop yeah. moment and but you wanted to come back to the ending and the walter uh, Key's relationship. Do you want to do, you want to do this now? Or yeah, let's, that for let's go there because okay. I think to the extent that there's any romance in this film, as we learn just before the ending between the, these, this exchange between Walter and Keys at the very end, we've by that point learned that Phyllis didn't actually love Walter. At least she reveals that she didn't love him. Um, there's no real romance there. To TJ's point, he was fixated on her. There was an obsession there, but it wasn't love. 
There is a love, though, between Walter and Keyes. They repeatedly tell each other, actually, that they love each other throughout the film. And it finishes... Well, Walter, all... says it to, Walter says it to Keyes several times, and like kind of semi-sarcastically. Semi-sar- but I don't think we hear Keyes say it to Walter until the very end. Until the, but, it's, but it is genuine. There's a mutual respect yeah. and a love there. They, they do... And the lighting of the cigarettes and the lighting of the cigarettes. I was just about to say, the matches throughout the film, Keyes can't light his own match, and it's like a spouse stepping in to calm their significant other repeatedly. Walter's always the one to do it. Yes. He's always there and, with the match. First of all, the fact that Fred McMurray can light a match with just his thumb in one hand is like the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. And he constantly does it to light Keyes' cigars for him. And the fact that uh, Robinson manages to pull it off at the end, too. Like, the fact, just just that sheer ability to light a match with yeah. your thumb anyway. As Walter's dying in the very last moments of the movie, uh, Edward G. Robinson lights a it, match for him. And Robinson, yeah, he, exactly. The, the, the idea that Keyes is, is he's um, reciprocating. He's the one now serving to, to calm Walter. It compliments and consummates a homosocial relationship that's gone throughout the movie. Um, that's choosing my word very carefully because I know if I suggest like even even though lighting of a cigarette was shorthand for sex, as we saw in this movie, there's a there's a fade away in this movie. In this very you know, movie yeah. um, but you know when I was so dumb to suggest that the um, oil rig in There Will Be Blood was possibly a gushing phallus. I think a lot of people lost their minds online. But um, this is a this is don't a don't worry about what people say online. Um, TJ homo social relationship that is consummated in the ending. That uh, again, going back to Humanon says is the result of the all possibilities of relationships that are heterosexual romances are closed off to basically both men. Um, Keys is basically an asexual character. Neff um, gets <laughs> done by the Spider Woman, and then and it's it's more obvious in the novel. But he really does try to strike something up with the daughter, um, even though she's oh, yeah. she's yeah. nineteen yeah. and he's thirty three uh, with Lola. Yeah, and and what this is, is problematic doing in um, nineteen uh, forty four is th- this is the guy you were in the foxhole with. Um, when your, your wife's at home, literally, you know, perhaps in a different country, can't really do those, those sort of, um, close and intimate caretaking encounters with you. So you were sort of in the foxhole with these guys and those things, the, the previous relationships, uh, had broken down and these were formed. And that's something that we're seeing kind of enacted on screen at the end of it, that, um, it, it becomes a sort of bros before hose ending, um. To use the parlance of our times. Do you think that uh, Fred McMurray, um, Walter, is like... I I, kind of get the sense that part of why he's doing this... Yeah, he wants to, you know, get with Barbara Stanwyck, as we all would, I think. Um, But part of why he's doing this is to see if he can, to some extent. You know? Hmm. Or am I reading in too much there? Well, like, he sells insurance. And so, like, the idea of selling someone a package without him knowing that he's buying it, I think is probably a little exciting to an insurance salesman and then the thrill of pulling off a perfect murder and collecting and then running away with the wife also exciting but i think that like the fact that keys figures it out i think walter has like a respect for that Mm -hmm. the fact that keys bests him Mm -hmm. you know he thinks he can get away with this he thinks he's smarter than everyone the best laid plans and then keys he's not smarter than everyone he's not smarter than keys you know do you what do you think about that I think at the ending, you definitely see a mutual admiration between the two of them. 
even though Keyes is disappointed in the route Walter took, um, he's still, there's a, there's a different version of this where he immediately calls the cops, where he immediately renounces him, where he doesn't go to him in the elevator. And even that saying, like, you're not going anywhere, you're not even going to make it to the elevator is coming out of this, like, look, if I owe you anything, it's some sort of reconnection with reality right before you're about to die. Um, I don't know. That's something that I see there. Ken, do you have, do you have something? No, I think there's absolutely, I think there's a mutual admiration. It's just to your point, by the time we get to the end, Keyes' Keys's love and admiration is for Walter as he was. And even in that moment, it's, it's, he's kind of, it's overlapping. He's extending that love to the guy who's bleeding out on the office floor, the elevator bay floor. Um, he's there there is still that fondness and appreciation for him i mean this is a guy we talked earlier about the fact that um he offers the job to walter when walter turns it down he kind of you know mike drops it by insulting him a little in that scene though he's buttering walter up and you can tell that it's because he really does want walter to come work for him he likes this guy. Yeah. He respects this guy. It's clear he has a problem with the rest of the company. He's constantly complaining about everybody else in the company and how the firm handles all of these claims and handles all of these um, insurance policies. But he constantly is talking to Walter. He's constantly going to Walter. He's constantly he goes to Walter's house when it com- or his apartment when it comes to just event yeah. kind of well and yeah in his realization over the Dietrichson case. He's Walter's the guy he goes to to reveal his yeah. insight into what he thinks is going on. I also really, really like how Keys like realizes something's not right with the case. Like the little detail he latches onto that everyone else, including Fred McMurray, missed mm-hmm. is really, really smart. What was that detail, TJ? He took out accident insurance, then he broke his leg. Why didn't he file a claim? Yeah, man, that's so good. Yeah. That's so good. Yeah. Uh, that's so good. Small note, and this is just. It's filmmaking license that I think was something worth taking. Uh, apartment doors don't open into the hallways. That's actually against code. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but, but. The, the door opens into the hallway so that Barbara Stan, sorry, Phyllis can hide behind the door. And I love that she just kind of pulls it a bit to let him know, like, hey, I'm back. Yes. You're done. Don't close the damn door. Uh, it's, it's, a it's another great. Yeah, it's a great scene. It's a great moment, which, by the way, I've often, when watching this movie, thought, would I be able to pick up on that, or would that spook me out when I? Because <laughs> I don't know, just the door suddenly pulling. If my mind would work fast enough, um, the fact though in that scene when they're in the apartment, he he does begin to speak a little more loudly, and that it starts he starts to excite Keys, which causes Keys, of course, to talk more rapidly and talk a little louder, so that when Phyllis shows up before she goes to ring the doorbell, well, the setup of that scene, the setup of that scene is Phyllis calls. Walter from a payphone, and Walter says, "Come on up." Yes, I'm here alone. And then as soon as he says, "Come on up," keys at the door. Yep. So that's that's a ticking time bomb because Barbara Stanwyck is on her way up, and Keys is here. So if they encounter each other, the whole game is up. So the fact that like the fact that they start talking loud so that she can hear them and like doesn't blow it all is is uh, that's good. It's also a fantastic, just a fantastic shot. Once she's alerted Walter that she's there, the camera then cuts to a position right behind the door. And so we get all three of them in the shot with Phyllis obviously hanging on to the doorknob, it seems, and leaning back against the wall. You've got Walter, center frame, 
um, right at the edge of the doorway as he's still talking to um, Keys. And Keys, a little more distant, down the hallway on the right side of the screen, right in front of the elevator bays, just contemplating and trying to like figure all of this out in his head. It's just kind of like this, he's got this spinning effect or feeling almost. And uh, it's just a great shot of our three leads in the same same moment, same scene, same shot. And how Walter right in the middle is kind of at this moment, kind of hugging the fence, like riding the fence or hugging the line between these two worlds and how he's trying to keep them at bay. One literally kind of pulling on him in one direction and the other slowly drifting away from him. And I just love, absolutely love that shot and that, that, that scene. Um, it's a really, really great moment of kind of, I think, um, encapsulating exactly what's going on for Walter. Uh, TJ, what else, what else do you like about double indemnity that you want to talk about? Um, I, I hit on this already, but I didn't quite put it in these terms. Um, even with putting the confession at the beginning of the movie, it uh, bravely, courageously kind of subverts the typical like teleology of a narrative, which is we're supposed to be, um, what did you do? How did you do it? And why did you do it? And right before the film really gets going into the main plot, we have the who did it? How did they do it and why did they do it? Like I said, pretty explicitly. Mm-hmm. And that's a, in lesser hands, you really handcuff yourself in terms of narrative tension, just kind of throwing all of that out there. So that's something that I really admire, but I think it also kind of echoes nicely with um, what I mentioned earlier about Walter being kind of motivated by non-attainment, motivated by seeking the thrill and not actually getting anything. It's a game without a goal in a sense. And this is a movie that, um, like L.A. Confidential, I admire a lot and works really, really well for me, despite it being something that typically doesn't, you know, make me super excited. And like, it's, it's again, it's a pretty traditional, but very, very well done genre picture. Um, and, it's just, yeah, I don't know. It's just it's not a the it's not the type of movie I typically love, but I do. The, the kind of movie that I also sometimes don't always respond to is like the first version of something, the first version of something that I've seen like the influence of down the road. Once I see like the blueprint, it does. I don't always like respond to it as much as, as strongly as I've responded to the things that came after it, and that's not really the case here. Um, I respond to this very heavily, and I also. You know, Ken, I think you want to talk about, you know, is this the first film noir? And, like, maybe, but whether it is or it isn't, it certainly is, like, the quintessential film noir. It kind of has everything that the genre offers. Um, you know, you have, like, the ultimate femme fatale character. You have voiceover. You have Venetian blind shadows. <laughs> you have uh, a framing device, a murder plot, etc. Um, so, you know, it's all there. And I don't know. Like I just, I just love all that stuff so much, and I, and I love it in every form and every version. Um, even when like that, those kinds of archetypes show up in other genres, whether it be Blade Runner, you know, you see a lot of that. That's a film noir sci-fi, or even in something like um, uh, Ex Machina. Like sure, the femme fatale in Ex Machina, you're never really sure of her intentions, and is she actually in love with the main character, or is she just using him for her own schemes? Like it's great, it's great stuff, and like the fa- you know the 
the prototype in Barbara Stanwyck here is, is great. And everything about the plot is great. And the fact that, like, no detail isn't used, which is another hallmark of, like, if not film noir, then of detective stories. The fact that, like, they introduced Lola, the daughter, previously mentioned, and, like, the boyfriend. And, like, it's <laughs> Nino's like a time, but Yeah, Nino's a Ketty, turns out to be. Which, so, is Nino Barbara Stanwyck's actual lover, or was she using him as well, do we think? She's. You, you, I, According to the novel, she's using him as well. Um, he yeah. gets okay. in the novel gets money from him. They go in. Lola and Nino go in and borrow money from Walter so that Nino can finish his chemistry PhD. <laughs> and and then yeah. Anyway. Um. Well, regardless, in this, in regardless, in this, Fred McMurray learns that Nino Zacchetti, the Barbara Stanwyck's stepdaughter's boyfriend is also involved with Barbara Stanwyck, so mm-hmm. he's like, "Oh, I've been, I've been played." Yeah. So, well, and you mentioned the 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 femme fatale aspect. I think something that's important as well, um, and, and I like that you mentioned the Venetian blinds, the <laughs> mise en scène that's used in here to obscure so much of people's intentions. You know, one of the reasons why that shot I talked about earlier with Phyllis in the car is so striking is because of all the different ways that her face is obscured throughout the film. You mentioned the wig, you mentioned the lipstick, but the first time we see her descending the stairs, there's the veil. Yes. And then there you go. You have the, the black widow, which is echoed with Faye Dunaway's Evelyn Mulray later of the, that veil down that's casting kind of a a spider's web. A Tom Collins, please with, with lime, not lemon. When she comes to, when she comes to Walter's apartment to, basically cut literally consummate their their arrangement um both literally and figuratively there are two um there there are basically two settings within his apartment they're in the kitchen at one point which is all clothed in entirely in darkness except for the light um emanating from the living room and they're also in the living room and in both instances when the camera is on phyllis her face is basically um basically split in half between two different shades in the living room half of her face is in light and the other half is is uh, shaded in darkness the light coming from the, the side table lamp when they're in the kitchen most of her face is shrouded in in darker shadow and there's just enough light at one point casting a, a, a band of light from the living room onto her face she's literally two-faced throughout the entirety of of the scene in his apartment and it's it's a it's a fascinating use of of lighting the cinematographer who i believe chiaroscuro uh, lighting it's perfect means the light sources in the is in the frames that what that means no it's um low-key high contrast lighting in order Uh, to have really strong differences between the whites and the blacks and it often um isolates the the face or a figure among an otherwise like really darkened setting um it's it's kind of a key for for film noir another key aspect of film noir that i think works so well particularly if this is arguably audience's first real introduction to what most people nowadays most historians critics and cinephiles would say is the first complete or true uh, film noir, as TJ mentioned earlier, you've got something like The Maltese Falcon or Stranger on the Third Floor. Both of those are from the early 40s, and both of them are noir adjacent. You, I've even argued that um, Maltese Falcon is film noir, but it doesn't necessarily check off all the boxes we're looking for usually in film noir from the 40s. 
one of those one of the the aspects to film noir that i love so much at this time period is subversion and it's not just subversion within the story but subversion uh within how the film is put together and in this case it's the central casting of the movie um cannot speak enough we we already mentioned earlier about edward g robinson the fact that most american audiences would have recognized him as a leading figure of the gangster genre in the 30s very popular leading man of the 30s for those kinds of crime films Um, but he's usually the villain on the flip side you've got fred mcmurray and barbara stanwick and fred mcmurray up to this point has kind of he's one of the highest paid leading men in hollywood at the time but he's a leading man usually in lighter dramas or comedies. He's kind of your just stand-in for your your everyman American uh, attractive husband type. Um, he's just or, – or even if he's single, the point is he's, he's usually a good guy. And he had to be convinced to kind of take on this role to play something against type. And it's something uh, that we see actually from Billy Wilder repeatedly. He does it with Barbara Stanwyck as well. Up to this point, Barbara Stanwyck is mostly known for playing – um, uh, leading ladies in screwball comedies or light dramas or lighter dramas like um, Meet John Doe, for example, with Gary Cooper. And suddenly she is playing this new villainess role. She's playing the ultimate femme fatale. And Billy Wilder does this throughout his career hereafter because we see it when he's got William Holden in Stalag 17, who's playing a prisoner of war who's not very likable, if we're being completely honest, but yet he's our protagonist. Gloria Swanson, you've got her playing a delusional husband in Sunset Boulevard, despite the fact she was a one-time beloved silent film star. You've got Humphrey Bogart as a romantic leading man in Sabrina, which is a light romantic comedy. You've got James Cagney in a silly kind of throwaway comedy in the early 60s called One, Two, Three. Marlena Dietrich is in doing this in Witness of the Prosecution playing against type. And all three of our, our characters in this movie are playing against type. And this is the first time we see it really to this degree in film at the time um, to this extent. And particularly from Billy Wilder, who obviously is going to repeatedly do it in the future. And I just love the subversion to the audience. For the audience, the moment you start the, from the beginning of the film... The audience is being introduced to familiar faces doing unusual things that they're not um, normally uh, attaching to these actors. Um, further to that point, um, Eric von Stroheim, also in Sunset Boulevard, yeah. was another one of those. Uh, with Stanwyck, apparently she was she agreed to do it and then was told Billy Wilder she was scared. And according to legend, he said, are you an actress or a mouse? Uh <laughs> Uh, one last one last kind of shout out thing for me um miklos rosha who does the score yes uh hungarian composer worked for about 50 years 45 years uh 17 oscar nominations three wins um so we're gonna hear a lot from him throughout this is one of three scores he did in 1944 um i think it's a fantastic score right from the very beginning you've got him in the background yes josh we can talk about this more in the Oscar section, but how many nominees were there for best score in 1944? It's like 15 or something. In the okay, so there's two categories. There was uh, best scoring of a dramatic or comedy picture and best scoring of a musical picture, and this was nominated in the dramatic or comedy picture category, where there was 20 nominees. <laughs> and then in the best scoring of a musical picture, there was one, two, three. In the best scoring of musical picture category, there's 14 nominees, which means 34 movies <laughs> nominated for best score at the Oscars in 1944. 
wh- why were they doing that? And when did they stop doing that? I don't. Well, I, that was surprising to me. At the that time period, at the time period, there's no there's no question. The reason why they've got two separate categories is because MGM is producing musicals like you know most of us produce like like phlegm or or just you know <laughs> it's it's it look it's, it's a terrible <laughs> analogy <laughs> sorry i'm that makes sense because who, so mgm was making these schools and who invented the oscars tj i'm gonna guess mgm the studios louis b mayer yeah. invented the oscars coincidentally as a union busting tactic as we are now i mean not hopefully not by the time this airs but we are currently as we record this in week nine of the writer's strike possibly going to be an actor strike soon Louis, when the studios employees start to organize in the 30s louis, louis mayor's like you know what maybe if they compete with each other for these little statues they won't compete with us the studios so let's let's create a little award ceremony to uh, get them to not unionize then they unionize anyway fun fact sorry well while we're talking about the music um it it's it's a pretty perfect score for the movie i mean when we talk we talk about movies scores that complement their films the use of like string instruments throughout the score of this and string instruments are more you know they're, they're often used in kind of romantic fare um the coupling of that building towards horns throughout the score is just building both or, or coupling both the the romance and the tension overlapping one another it's a brilliant brilliant score that um the moment I hear it, it's not one that always comes to mind, I'll be honest, just thinking about films and scores, but whenever I hear it, it just kind of puts me right to the mood of film noir. It's just kind of that perfect representation of everything you want um, in a in a musical uh, composition for a movie like this. Um, Ken, you like this, right? I love this movie. Um, okay. I, well, before we move on, because I do want to talk a little bit about... Um, we're going to talk about the Academy Awards, and um, well, I got I got stuff before that. So um, I do want to shout out. We talked. We've been talking about Lola. Jean Heather is the actress who plays Lola Diedrichson in this movie. Um, she and um, Porter Hall, who I mentioned, plays Mister Jackson. He's the witness. Both of them will be reappearing shortly. Um, in actually, just about two weeks for those listening in, because they're both in Going My Way. Um, so they will be reappearing. Um, Jean Jean Heather plays a um, she plays a runaway teenager in love in that movie and Bing Crosby kind of has to play the go between uh, for her and her family. Um, and I'd like to take this moment to introduce a new segment if we can. Um, I think we need to call this, we're going to call this new segment best picture because in this film, the secretary of Neff and Key's insurance boss, Edward Norton is played <laughs> by an actress by the name of Bess flowers. Now Bess was known as the queen of the Hollywood extras um, she appeared in more than 350 films, which is just an astounding number. Many of them uncredited. Yes, many of them uncredited. Hen- yeah. Hence the extra. She she is literally just getting paid to be in these movies. Um, she does have a line in this film. She introduces mm-hmm. Phyllis Diedrichson to um, Norton Keyes and unknowingly, um, or th- thinks she's introducing her to um, Walter, unknowing that Walter already knows her. Um but Best Flowers will theoretically pop up more than any other actor in our podcast dis- discussions as she holds the distinction of appearing in more Best Picture nominated films than any other person with 23 titles in 23. this category. Yeah. Wow. 23 over um, she, she was working for about four decades. So um, there'll be some variety. She'll pop up mostly in the 40s and 50s, but 
she will pop up again. And so we will come back in the future to our new segment, Best Picture. So welcome to our first iteration of the Best Picture segment. And if I may use that to segue into a different recurring segment, Josh's Populous Corner, may I? Yes, please. Let us okay. know what, what's, what's going on out there in the social uh, social world. Well, <laughs> not even the populist corner, I guess, but I just want to say that this is beloved not just by us, but by pretty much everyone, it seems like. You know, uh, normies seem to like this movie. Uh, people, serious film people seem to really like this movie. Um, we've referred to the American Film Institute list, the top 100 movies that they produced in 1997. And then again in 2007, we've all said that we're fans to varying degrees of that list. Uh, it was number 38 on the original 1997 list, so 38th best American movie ever made, according to the American Film Institute. And the 2007 version, it climbed to number 29, so it was the number 29th best movie ever made as a 2007 American movie ever made, according to the American Film Institute. Um, it was selected for preservation into the National Film Registry in the Library of Congress in 1992. Which is early. Which means it's very early, because they started doing that in 1989. Yeah. So that means... In 1992, they had 100 movies selected for preservation. So it was selected among the first 100 American movies to be selected for preservation for being, quote, culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant, which is a criteria I really like. That's a great, uh, that's great criteria. It is, because it's not, it's not seeking to be too objective. It's just kind of politely recognizing a film for its worth. Um, it also... You, you, sorry, you're talking about the AFI. I do want to throw out there. Um, we've talked quite a bit about Phyllis Diedrichson. I seem to recall her being in the top 10 for villains. Um, hmm. The AFI had a 100 years, 100 villains, and Phyllis Diedrichson landed in the top 10 for AFI's list of all-time greatest film villains. Um, I think, I, you know what, in retrospect, I'm, uh, I'm going to go ahead and agree with that. She is... She is she is particularly uh, dangerous, particularly when we fu- when Walter first finds out through Lola that she may or may not, let's be honest, she is responsible for Lola's mother's death. Um, we didn't talk about that. TJ just mentioned in the chat for some reason, even though he has a microphone working in front of his face, he could have just said this out loud. He just said in the chat that this was not included in the 2022 Sight and Sound poll. You want to elaborate on that, TJ? Uh, or do you want to type it out and I can read it for you? It was in the um, 2012 sight and sound poll that the BFI does once per decade um, as like 283 or something like that. Um, it goes to 250, but then they kind of do who else got votes on there. Didn't pop up really at all in the, the 2022 one. Um, however, there's a list I really like that's a thousand films like uh, called yeah. it's the They Shoot Pictures, Don't They? website of the 1000 greatest films it pops up as mentioned in our out of africa episode yes uh number 168 on there 168 good list uh also i think billy wilder considered it probably his best movie um i think in some sense depending on what day you asked him he thought this was his best movie and this is a guy that made the apartment which won best picture he made some like it hot he made Witness for the Prosecution, previously mentioned. He made Sunset Boulevard, previously mentioned. He made Sabrina, previously mentioned. He made The Seven-Year Itch. He made The Lost Weekend. So dude, ma- dude's one of the most prolific and beloved directors to ever live, and he said this was his best movie. So it is, that's certainly saying something. You, you mentioned The Apartment. We'll obviously get to that when we talk about 1960 films. Um, but that also obviously co-stars Fred McMurray, again playing yes, a scheming is. heel yep. against type. Um and Letterbox, the Letterbox of it all, 
the the people in Letterboxd love this movie too, uh, unsurprisingly. It's got a 4.3 on Letterboxd, which is very wow. good. Yeah. Um, that's that's based on 100,000 ratings. It's uh, apparently good enough to be number 156 in the Letterboxd Top 250, which is very high. Um, some notable entries, most of which made me laugh. Again, depending on the kind of movie, you're going to get varying kinds of Letterboxd responses. If a movie is like, you know as good as this but like not quite as well known you might get a lot of top responses that are like actual reviews or like pointing things out that the movie's doing like you know actually you know some some level of analysis but when a movie is as popular as this one you kind of get jokier top responses because the normies are going to check out the letterbox reviews and hitting thumbs up on the ones that make them laugh and these were the ones that made me laugh and these were near the top reviews uh the number one, the number one review on letterbox for double indemnity is a five-star review that simply says cautionary tale for simps everywhere <laughs> which really made me laugh i'm sorry i don't, do so I don't understand old man. Do, do you know what a simp is um I, it you're going to explain it but it has to do with uh with a submissive uh usually male role yes it's a guy who likes a girl a lot and will do anything for her is effectively the definition. I've been it's listening good, to the kids. It's not a good thing nowadays in our modern parlance. Mm. Uh, another five-star review near the most highest rated is, quote, all you need to make a movie is a girl, a gun, and a life insurance policy. <laughs> I agree. That is all you need to make a movie. Um, also near the top, quote, I too would kill Barbara Stanwyck's husband if she asked me to. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, retweet and then lastly this is also near the top this one that i liked a lot uh quote meeting barbara stanwick and then ruining your entire life for her is just par for the course baby get in line so i a lot of barbara stanwick fans in the letterbox top top reviews. i appreciate the inclusion of the word baby in there the yeah yeah yes someone they're also i didn't write these down but there's also references to people saying um take a drink every time fred mcmurray says baby like <laughs> yeah it's a lot he's always like baby <laughs> It's the two of us, baby. baby. <laughs> which, which, which reminds me, I do really love like the pitter patter nineteen forties film noir dialogue. I mean, we kind of mentioned it already, but like the, when he does call, start calling her baby, I kind of laugh. But like that's only because it's it's been so heavily like mimicked and parodied and mocked that like it makes me laugh now. But like there's also some like really really good dialogue. Like Ken, you mentioned like when Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck first meet. The, um, the ninety mile an hour thing. Yes, mm. you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, they're um, yeah. It's the it's I call them the supposes scene, but the you know, Walters like. Um, can, I, can I just read it in its entirety? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> but you must do it dramatically. Well, okay, I want this to be like actors' okay. theater here. Do, am I am I doing both? Parts? I was gonna say I can should I can I do, fill in one of them. I've got the dialogue. Oh, Ken's got it too. Right. Okay, here we go. Um, okay, you, you got to pick parts. Be Fred McMurray or Barbara Stanwyck. I doesn't you you go you go whichever you prefer I'll you be Fred McMurray okay. I'll be Barbara Sandwick okay yeah I was but I'm sort of getting over the idea if you know what I mean there's a speed limit in this state Mr. S- Mr. Neff four to five miles an hour how fast was I going officer I'd say around ninety suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket suppose I let you off with a warning this time suppose it doesn't take suppose I have to whack you over the knuckles suppose I bust out crying and put my head in your shoulder suppose you try putting it on my husband's shoulder that tears it. Oh, well done. Well done. I have a few notes. I feel like me and Ken are about to make out. Yeah. <laughs> and then we're going to kill TJ and collect on the policy. <laughs> Excuse me. I am clearly Barton Keys in this scenario. 
that's a good scene. I like that scene. Before we move into talking about the Academy Awards, I do want to throw out there, I, I there's not much box office information on this in 1944, so I'm not going to spend too much time. I'm not really going to touch on it. Um, the budget is under a million dollars, and a not insignificant chunk is going to Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck, because at the time, Barbara Stanwyck was not only the highest paid actress in Hollywood, she was the highest paid woman in the United States in 1944, and Fred McMurray was the highest paid actor in Hollywood in 1944, and one of the top five highest paid men in America. So these two are making off with a load of treasures, even if they're not taking the insurance money in the movie. Um, they're getting paid an awful lot to be in this, um, which is all the more all the more interesting that they um, they almost turned it down, both of them. Um, alas, money and an interesting role will always sway an actor, I suppose. And I think it, this made about $5 million at the box office. Like you said, the budget was somewhere around nine hundred, nine hundred fifty thousand, but it made $5 million. I've seen... I've seen competing numbers. I don't know how the five million pans out because apparently initially it didn't do that great. But I'm just not sure where the. I, I believe it probably did make five million. I'm just not sure over what period of time because I've also yeah. seen I've seen the top ten for the box office that year, and this doesn't appear on that list, which is weird considering yeah. considering I think Going My Way might be the top grossing film, and it made like six point five million. So. Well- Five million translates in twenty twenty three dollars about eighty six million, which is like definitely solid, but it's not like an enormous hit, you know. So no, I mean, I wouldn't expect that to make the top ten. No, um, it, it is interesting. So Paramount Pictures produces this. It also produces Going My Way, and Paramount is definitely putting a lot more marketing, a lot more focus on getting people to go to the theaters to see Going My Way. It's the one that's trying to promote um, more so, and that plays into the Academy Awards, and it's ticking. Billy Wilder off. In fairness, he has every right to be ticked off because Paramount is playing favorites here. To the point that in the film, I'm not sure if you guys caught this, but there's a scene in the film when after having met with um, with uh, Phyllis and, and Mr. Diedrichson in their home, he um, Walter is leaving, he gets back to his car, and Lola, of all people, is waiting inside of her car, uh, inside of his car, excuse me, because she wants a ride from him. Um heading into town or whatever and she's got this line where she says i thought you could let me ride with you if you're going my way if that's not the the most disgusting ploy to throw in the film because going my way has just been released like a month and a half before this and paramount's basically just hey reminder folks you can still see going my way in theaters starring that's, Bing Crosby. that's called cross promotion yeah and it's like uh, there's a post-credit scene with nick fury in it yeah that's and um, rumor is, so we get to the Academy Awards, um, let's talk about it. This film has seven Academy Award nominations, and despite how great it is, we have all agreed, it is the only one of these five nominated Best Picture films not to walk home with an Oscar. It goes home winless. Over for 7. Yeah. And it is the only one of these five that doesn't end up going home with something. And Billy Wilder apparently got ticked during the ceremony and <laughs> I, I i've read too. this on multiple i read i had looked this up in multiple sites but it is confirmed when they announced um leo mccary the director of going my way for best director at the academy awards and he was walking down the aisle wilder stuck his foot into the aisle and tripped mccary on his way to the stage incredible <laughs> incredible well from from what i heard again this is in the documentary on the criterion blu-ray um 
like we said, Billy Wilder thought this was his best movie. And, like, this is a very early movie for him. So, like, it's his third feature. Third feature film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the point is, he was pretty confident going into the Academy Awards because they did not have the uh, pre awards media cycle that we currently have. Right. So, like, the winners were a little less well known. Like, it was more of a surprise. So, he, he thought he was going to win. And he thought Double Nemney would do really well. And it didn't. Going My Way just kept eating its lunch. Uh, I mean, what categories? Let's see. It lost picture, director, and screenplay to Going My Way. Um, so it was Going My Way was eating Double Indemnity's lunch all night. And like you said, by the end of the night, by the time they got to Best Director, Billy Wilder was sick of it and decided to <laughs> enact revenge in his own little way. Wait, let's the, the seven the seven categories it's nominated in. Obviously, it's nominated picture. We just said it's nominated director. You mentioned it loses screenplay. It's nominated adapted screenplay. Um, Stanwick is the only of the the only one of the actors nominated. She's nominated for best actress. And I can't believe Edward G. Robinson's not. Yeah, nominated. Edward G. Robinson being absent yeah. is surprising. Um, particularly given we'll talk about this for going my way. Um, Barry Fitzgerald fills in, I believe, two spots uh, this year. He's nominated yeah. in two different categories for the same role, and yet they couldn't make room for Edward G. Edward G. Robinson here. Um, you've got uh, nomination for score. So Russia's score, and you've got a nomination. Yeah, but who wasn't nominated for score that year? There's 35 yeah, movies yeah. of professional score. Right. Um, and it's nominated for sound. And it does. And cinematography. And, and oh, yeah, that's right. Cinematography for John uh, Seitz, uh, or Seitz, excuse me. Um, for, yeah, black and white. This is back when there are two categories because, hey, folks, we've introduced color. Um, it loses all of them, which boggles the mind. Especially screenplay. I mean, picture, yeah, that one boggles the nine too. But like, how do they not get screenplay right? This is such a marvelously. Written it's cinematography. Movie. This movie looks yeah. so brilliant, even decades later. We're eighty years well, past the point, and it still looks so brilliant. You guys are acting like they often give the award to the best screenplay. <laughs> yeah, this is. I def- feel like screenplay. I feel like they get screenplay right more often than they get picture right, particularly in the last like ten or fifteen years. Because I feel like screenplay is usually the award they give the movie that they would give picture if they had the balls, but then don't have the balls to give pictures. It, so they give screenplay. It is of note, um, what, TJ. To your point, what Josh said earlier about you know what was the purpose of the Oscars when it was first created it was an idea of Louis B. Mayer and the studios all kind of jumped on it as the way to promote union busting yeah. tactic. The the reality is, as I mentioned, Paramount is ba- has produced both Double Indemnity and Going My Way. It's actively campaigning for going my way to the point that it's urging its own employees to vote, those who are actually Academy members, to vote for going my way. So there is definitely internal politics when it comes to the Oscars. And at this time, more so than arguably there is today, because back then, the studios have much more of a stranglehold on the Academy. And the Academy at the time is definitely a marketing tool. To get people to show up to the theaters, because a lot in many cases the movies are still playing in theaters and available for audiences when the Oscars are being um, being held. So, yeah, it's a definitely a different period of time. It's just in retrospect, looking back and thinking how brilliant this film is, how well it holds up, and yeah, it's got the nominations, but it goes home empty-handed. It's just uh, it's jarring. I haven't seen Going My Way yet, so I can't really comment on it beating this for best picture but i cannot imagine based on the rep i'd never heard of going my way until we just picked this year 
and I've heard of and seen multiple times, Double Indemnity. So, but I, I kind of noticed that, like, I guess to TJ's point, it, the the movies from the '40s that have stood the test of time, I feel like most of them did not win Best Picture, with the exception of Casablanca. You know, uh, movies I think of from the '40s that did not win Best Picture: Citizen Kane, The Maltese Falcon, It's a Wonderful Life, Double Indemnity, Notorious, Judges of the Sierra Madre, and The Red Shoes. None of those won Best Picture, and the only one, the only like classic I can think of from the '40s that like still people talk about today is Casablanca. That's the only one that won, actually won Best Picture. So I, I think that's true for most decades. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but as this, I don't know, as I, we I will like, hope, I've, as we will hopefully tackle in coming episodes and series. Um, just like just like listing all the movies that I know of from a decade that you know a decade that was eighty years ago. The fact that only one of them won Best Picture, I think, is a lower batting average than most decades. Maybe I'm being overly generous to the other decades, though. We'll see. Hard to say. We'll, we'll, there's a couple. We'll see how we feel when we get to um, the best years of their lives. We are dangerously close to having this episode run longer than the runtime of the movie. <laughs> so are there any more final thoughts on Double Indemnity? Nope. I'm I am good. I am good. TJ's shaking his head as if people can see him. I think we've tackled uh, Words did way. come out of my mouth there, so... That's true. That's true. He did. Yes. No, we've tackled all of the uh, all of the subjects and items I was hoping to get to today. So, um, I think that that pretty much summer sums it up for us. Well, let me just re- let me just repeat what I kind of already said. Uh, I love movies like this with get rich quick schemes and the best laid schemes of mice and men and people who think they're smarter than everyone else and quickly and disastrously learn disastrously learn that they're not. And, you know, because these movies are always simple and clean and have escalating conflict and stakes, and they are tense and dramatic and cathartic. And Dumb Old Dumney is all of those things and then, and then some. So this movie fucking slaps, if I may. Check it out. 100% agreed. It is, it is a perfect example of its genre. Straight down the line. Straight down the line. That'll do it for this first episode of our 1944 series. We'll be back next week with Gaslight, the film that gave us the term um starring ingrid bergman and uh i don't think so ken i don't think that i don't think that's where the term came it from is, i think you're wrong it is in fact i think you're actually kind of crazy yeah no i think I, you're just confused I, this is so frustrating you know <laughs> you're making me i don't know what i, I don't know what to believe anymore uh also gaslight does not mean lying can i just go on the record and say that i guess we can talk about that next week but that bugs me <laughs> We will have time when people misuse the term. We will have time to talk about it with with our our Cockney hosts, or I'm sorry, not our Cockney hosts, our English hosts, and their Cockney maid, played by Angela Lansbury. Oh, wow! That's for next week. Join us then when we continue our 1944 series. In the meantime, if you haven't already, check out Double Indemnity. Adios. Goodbye. You bet I'll get out of here, baby. I'll get out of here butt quick.